Hey, welcome to the Living Messenger Podcast, where we discuss God's simple truths and His gospel. I'm your host, Andrew O'Neill. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. I'm happy to be back. It's been a little while and I'm going to be uh, actually uh, doing a talk on the 24 elders today. Um, I'm actually presenting this as a sermon tomorrow for my church and I thought I'd kind of review it and go over it uh, tonight on the podcast. And so give me a little review for tomorrow as it will be my first sermon. So, a couple months ago, um, I started studying Revelation, and I kept reading about the 24 elders, and I was just intrigued by the 24 elders. I've never really heard of them before. I mean, I've heard of them, but it never really struck me who are the 24 elders, what do they do, what, what are their purpose. So, I started studying around, trying to read a few different things, and I came across a uh, series by Pastor Stephen Bohr. It's a six-part series, and it goes over everything 24 Elders. And I thought it was really good because it's not something you really hear about, and I think the message is clear. This is really a story about salvation. It's a story about God does everything for a purpose, and that the works of Ellen G. White, the writings, uh, she was inspired, and the Bible and Ellen G. White go together. And there's no doubting that. So without further ado, um, let's get started with the 24 elders. So do we know what was happening in heaven before and after Jesus's resurrection? I believe we do. If we read Revelation 4 um, and 5, it will give us a kind of a glimpse into that picture. So Let's go there first, and we're going to read those chapters and just kind of go through each verse one by one. All right, Revelation 4.1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Now, you have to notice... What is this door? Where is it leading to? Is this just a door in heaven? Is it leading to heaven? Um, it's a door in heaven, right? Because a door is standing open in heaven. It's not into heaven, uh, not to heaven, but in heaven. So let's go ahead and continue reading. Revelation 4.2 Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So... Being in the spirit means John is in vision here. And we know someone is sitting on the throne. One sat on the throne. So who is this person who sat on the throne? If we read Revelation 3.21, it says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So the father is the one that's represented here because it's taking place before Jesus arrives. We'll get into that later because Jesus isn't present. So the Father is the one that's presented here on the throne. Uh, if we go on to verse Revelation 4, 3, 
we're going to notice this is going to be the physical appearance now of who sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now, jasper and sardius are deep red stones, meaning God is surrounded by fire. And what does a rainbow represent? It's a mixture of justice and mercy. So the door of mercy is still open, right? And let's continue to verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their hands. So here we have a description of the 24 elders. And we're going to skip verse 5 here and go on to verse 6. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. So here we have a description of these creatures. A better translation of the four living creatures are living beings. And we're going to get into who are these living creatures. So let's go on to Revelation 4, 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. So here we have description of them further. So they have six wings and sing, Holy, holy, holy. So there is another description of this in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, that will give us a little more insight as to who they are. In that year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So this is exactly the description we see in Revelation, right? And what is Isaiah saying? It's seraphim. Now, what is seraphim or who is seraphim? Seraphim is technically another term for a high-ranking angel, okay? So let's go on to verse 5. And from the throne proceeding lightnings, thunderings, and voices, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So here we have the throne room, and there's lightnings and thunderings and voices, and seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. Um, where have we heard seven lamps of fire before? In the Old Testament, in the, in the sanctuary, right? So where in the sanctuary was the seven lamps of fire. It's the lampstand, right? It's in the holy place. So is it possibly this is taking place in the holy place? Let's read some more verses just to make sure we can confirm this. Revelation 5, 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Where was incense offered in the sanctuary? In the holy place, right? So, again, another fact that we could, this door is leading into the sanctuary of the holy place in heaven. So, who are the seven spirits of God? Are there seven holy spirits? No, of course not, right? But the number seven represents totality or fullness. So, the Holy Spirit is present and in all his fullness there with God the Father and the 24 elders, and seraphim, or beings, or creatures. Okay? So let's go on to verse 9 through 11. 
Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So what are we singing here? This is a song to the Creator, the Father, right? Because He has created all things. And we're going to notice that another song at the end of chapter 5 that's going to be a song to the Redeemer. All right. So after reading this, what is exactly going on here, right? We see this uh, scene here in the holy place. Um, where is Jesus in all of this? And where are the angelic hosts? They are not present, right? So we're going to read chapter 5 and figure out what exactly and when they come into scene here. So let's go ahead to verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll? The scroll is going to be very important. But let's just get to the basics. What is a scroll? Now, in ancient times, uh, kings would use a scroll as their will or testament, right? They would seal it with strings wrapped around it, then would put wax on it, and then they'd press their ring, in, ring into it, which would seal it. So no one could open it unless they had the authority. So that way you knew if it was tampered with or whatnot. So that is what a scroll is. So let's go on to verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to lose its seal? So worthy means who is qualified. Not anyone could open the scroll, right? This person had to be qualified. Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Now this is powerful. No one could open it in heaven or on earth, not even God the Father. So this is interesting. You're going to see John react here because he understands the importance of this scroll. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. And wept means to cry out in anguish, the same word that describes Peter when he denied Jesus three times and went out and wept. So this is not just a small, you know, weeping. This is to cry out anguish, to weep. So it's powerful. So why is this scroll so important? This scroll contains the will and testament of the entire human race. And Kenneth Strand, a professor um, and pastor, I think sums it up really well here. He says, The central item, the seven-sealed scroll, portrays a will or testament, for that is precisely what such a seven-sealed document was in Rome, Roman law in John's day. We find then that the picture we have in the subdivision Revelation from 4.1 to 4.8 is a court scene in which a will or testament is to be opened. In the context of Revelation, this will or testament would be a title deed, as it were, to a man's lost inheritance, an inheritance which has been repurchased by Christ the Lamb. Thus the scroll is a book of destiny. The opening of it means inheritance in God's kingdom, it remains closed means fortitifer. No wonder John wept when he thought no one could open the scroll. So that's a great description. So what does a will or testament reveal? It reveals who will inherit and what they will, what they will inherit, right? Um, Ellen Jewett kind of further uh, goes on to this, and she says in manuscript releases, 
There in his open hand lay the book, the role of history of God's providences, the prophetic history of nations, and the church. Herein was contained the divine utterances, his authority, his commandments, his laws, the whole symbolic counsel of the internal. And the history of all ruling powers in the nations and symbolic language contained in that role the influence of every nation, tongue, and people from the beginning of Earth's history to its close. So this scroll represents Earth's history. It contains everything. And it's really interesting um, when he's talking about... Um, there's another quote from Andre that we're going to go over, and it's talking about the Jewish leaders, and they're going to have to face their decisions again here. So if we go to another Ellen White quote from Christ Object Lessons, she says, Thus the Jewish leaders made their choice. Their decision was registered in the book which John saw in the hand of him that sat upon the throne. The book which no man could open. In all its vindictiveness, this decision will appear before them in the day when this book is unsealed by the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So this is referring to the Jewish leaders when Pilate asked to uh, asked do you want me to release Jesus of Barabbas, right? They're going to face this decision again. So it's going to be very powerful. So do we understand why this scroll is important? It contains Earth's history, right? Um, and it's going to release who, who is able to go to heaven and who is not able to go to heaven. So let's go ahead and read Revelation 5.5. 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to lose its seven seals. So has prevailed, right? Which gives them the ability to lose its seal. Now we're going to see now Jesus suddenly appears here. And verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So wh what is the lamb who had been slain? This is Jesus, right? He's presenting himself as the lamb that had been slain. So at this point, has Jesus died? Yes, of course, right? Because he's slain. But he is living because he's standing in the throne room. Now, the seven spirits of God being sent to the earth represents what historical day in history? This is the day of Pentecost. Um, and that's when the Holy Spirit was pulled out on the earth in its fullness. It's a signal that Jesus had arrived and taken the scroll from the Father's hand so it could be eventually opened. And verse uh, 7. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So where is he coming from? From earth, right? So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I can take the scroll. I can break the seals and reveal who inherits eternal life and who doesn't. Let's go on to Revelation 8 through 10. So now they're going to break out in the hymn of praise, right? We saw that in the end of verse 4 for the Father, and now we're going to see it for the Redeemer. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So here they are singing a song to the Redeemer now, versus singing a song to the Creator of chapter 4. And what does redeem mean? It means to be bought back at a price, right? So Revelation eleven twelve. 
Now the angelic host arrive. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels on the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousands, ten thousands, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and strength and glory and blessing. So here the 24 elders, angels, and living creatures are singing, and the entire universe is singing um, their, his praise. We go to verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So are we understanding what is going on here, right? So Jesus arrives. He takes the scroll saying, I have the authority to open the scrolls. And all of heaven rejoices. Now, Ellen G. White describes this scene also in her vision. And she's going to describe it, you know, exactly the same way, but she adds little important details. It's a little bit long, but I think it's very important. So, and this is from Desire of Ages. All heaven was waiting to welcome the Savior to the celestial courts. As he ascended, he led the way, and the multitudes of captives set free at his resurrection followed. The heavenly host with shouts and acclamations of praise and celestial song attended the joyous train. As they drew near to the city of God, the challenge is given by the escorting angels. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in and joyfully waiting sentinels respond. Who is this King of glory? They, this they say not because they know who not he is, but because they would hear the answer of exalted praise. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord might, mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Again is heard the challenge. Who is this King of glory? For the angels never were of hearing his name exalted. The escorting angels make reply, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Then the portals of the city of God are opened wide and the angelic throng sweep through the gates. <clears throat> Amid a burst of rapturous music. Now, this is a description that we've heard. There's a throne and around it the rainbow of promise. There are cherubim and seraphim, right? We already went over this. The commanders of the angel of hosts, the sons of God, the representatives of the unfallen worlds are assembled. Now, this is important. We're going to go over this later. The heavenly council before which Lucifer had accused God and his son, the representatives of those sinless realms over which Satan had thought to establish his dominion, all are there to welcome the Redeemer. They are eager to celebrate his triumph and to glorify their king, but he waves them back. Not yet. He cannot now yet receive the coronet of glory and the royal robe. He enters into the presence of his father. He points to his wounded head, the pierced side, the marred feet, he lifts his hands, bearing the print of nails. He points to the token of his triumph. What is Jesus presenting himself here as? A wounded lamb, right? Just like we read about in Revelation 5. He presents to God the wave sheaf, those raised with him as representatives of that great multitude he shall come forth from. The grave at his second coming. He approaches the Father with whom there is joy over one sinner that repents, who rejoices over one with singing. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Father and the Son had united in a covenant to redeem man if he should be overcome by Satan. 
They had clasped their hands in a solemn pledge that Christ should become the surety for the human race. This pledge Christ has fulfilled. When upon the cross he cried out, It is finished. He addressed the Father. The compact has been fully carried out. Now he declares, Father, it is finished. I have done thy will, O my God. I have completed the work of redemption. If thy justice is satisfied, I will that they also whom thou has given me be with me where I am. The voice of God is heard proclaiming that justice is satisfied. Satan is vanquished. Christ toiling, struggling ones on earth are accepted in the beloved. Now here's another uh, little hint here. Before the heavenly angels and the rib representatives of the fallen worlds, they are declared justified where he is. There his church shall be. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteous and peace have kissed each other. The Father's arms encircle his son, and the world and word is given. Let all angels of God worship him with joy unutterable, rules and principalities, and powers acknowledge the supremacy of the Prince of Life. The angel hosts prostrate themselves before him. While the glad shout fills all the courts of heaven, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Songs of triumph mingle with music from angel harps till heaven seems to overlook with joy and praise. Love has conquered, the lost is found. Heaven rings with voices and lofty strains proclaiming blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Wow, what a vision that must have been to witness. I can't even imagine the emotions she must have been going through after seeing that. I told you the story was about salvation, and I could literally end the sermon right here. But we still haven't truly identified who the 24 elders are. Now, I'm going to say traditionally Adventists have believed that the 24 elders are those that were resurrected with Christ during the resurrection. But that's not possible because in Revelation 4, before God arrived to the throne room, um, the 24 elders were already present, correct? So I'm not saying this definition of the 24 elders or, I guess, description of them may not be 100% perfect, but I do believe it is probably the best description um, of them, of who they are. So let's go ahead and um, read Job 38, 4 through 7. So God here is asking Job a series of questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have an understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about the creation story, right? This is creation here. So at the beginning of creation, the morning stars and sons of God shouted for joy. So the morning stars and sons of God existed before creation, correct? So, and another thing we want to notice is that the morning star and the sons of God are synonymous, uh, meaning they mean the same thing, right? So in Hebrew language, I guess they often do um, where they will start a sentence and describe one thing with a word, and then they'll end it reinforcing that, but with a different word, but means the same thing. It's a common thing they do in the Hebrew language. But does the Bible tell us who the morning stars represent? Uh, let's read Revelation 12.4. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. 
And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So what are we talking about here? What is the tail referring to and who is the dragon? It's the dragon's tail, right? And what does the dragon represent? The dragon represents Satan. And we know that Satan drew the third of the stars, angels of heaven, right, to earth. So we know that this represents angels. And so sons of God would also represent angels. Now, let's see what Ellen G. White says here. And this is from The Great Controversy. The scriptures declare that upon one occasion when the angels of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan came also among them, now to bow before the eternal king, but to further his own malicious designs against the righteous. With the same object, he is in attendance when men assemble for the worship of God. So did we hear that? The scriptures declare that upon one occasion when the angels of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan came also among them. Now she's referring to Job 1.6. Now let's see what Job 1.6 has to read. She's, Island G.O.A. is quoting angels of God. So Job 1, 6 and 7 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves. The Bible saying sons of God, Island G.O.A. is saying angels of God. So she's just simply um, describing what she's seeing, right? So she sees it as an angel. To present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on earth, and from walking back and forth on it. So some, some things to note here. Sons of God, did they dwell there? No, they did not. It says they came, right? And why is Satan present? And where does he come from? Satan says he comes from earth, the planet he represents, correct? Is it possible the sons of God also came from planets that they represent? We're going to get a little more into this. First, let's read Job 2, 1 and 2. This is another example. Again, there is a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. So what do we notice from this? It's the same thing as the first uh, passage from Job we read, right? Sons of God left and they came back. Satan came from the earth going to and fro. So what is going on in these scenes? This is God operating a democratic system and allows input from others. He is not a dictator. Um, a better story to kind of uh, represent this is the story of Ahab. Now to give you some context before I read 2 Chronicles, King Ahab had a meeting with King Jehoshaphat. And they were having this meeting. Ahab was a bad king. Jehoshaphat was a good king. And Ahab suggested that they should join forces together to attack their common enemies. Great idea, right? Um, so what Ahab did is he gathered 400 false prophets to tell, what, to tell him what they should do. They all said, go to war and you will gain a great victory. But Jehoshaphat wasn't convinced. He asked if he had a prophet of the Lord. Ahab said, of course I do, but he's in prison because he keeps preaching false or bad things, things I don't want to hear. Um, so Jehoshaphat said, bring him here. I want to hear what he has to say. So Micah the prophet comes, and in 2 Chronicles 18, 18 through 22, we're going to hear his response. Then Micah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne and all the hosts of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. 
Again, exactly the scene that we're talking about, right? And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab king of Israel to go up, that he may fall at Ramoth Gilad? So one spoke in this manner, and another spoke in that manner. Then his spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Do you think this was a good spirit? Does God use lying to get his way? Of course not, right? So who is this being? This was Satan. And we're going to see that Satan is at all these meetings concerning earth, right? Because they're discussing the matter of earth here, of all this council. So what does Ellen Jewett say? And Patriarchs and Prophets, she says, In the heavenly council, the angels pleaded with Lucifer. And in the story of redemption, uh, she says, God assembled the angelic host to take measure to advert the threatened evil. It was decided in heaven's council for angels to visit Eden and warn Adam that he was in danger from the foe. Uh, two angels sped on their way to visit our first parents. And here's another one that we looked at earlier that we're going to go over. The commanders of the angel of hosts, the sons of God, the representatives of the fallen worlds are assembled. Can we assume that all three of these are one, right? The heavenly council before which Lucifer had accused God and his son, the representatives of those sinless realms over which Satan had thought to establish his dominion are all there to welcome the Redeemer. Now, is this something of a hint of other worlds? Is this something new in the Bible? Now, if we read Revelation 12, 12, there is, you know, some conjecture that possibly there are some hints of a bigger heaven. Um, it reads, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. So heavens meaning plural. You know, it's not just, therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. It's heavens, meaning could be multiple, right? Is that concrete? No, but it's very possible. So does Ellen G. White say directly who the 24 hours? She's alluded to it several times. It was what she's seeing in her vision, right? So let's read uh, Revelation 5.5. 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to lose its seven seals. So she, uh, this is John saying one of the elders said, Do not weep. What does Ellen G. White say when she sees this? This role was written within and without, John says. I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look therein. The vision as presented to John made its impression upon his mind. The destiny of every nation was contained in that book. John was distressed at the utter inability of any human being or angelic intelligence to read the words or even to look therein. His soul wrought up to such point of agony and suspense that one of the strong angels had compassion on him and laying his hand on him assuredly said, Weep not. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to pin the book and to lose the seven seals. So she directly states strong angel. Let's see what uh, Revelation 7, 13. Here's another example of the elders. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? So John is talking to the 24 elder. What does Ellen G. White say when she sees this? As John saw the multitude standing around the throne of God, the question was asked, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? They are they which came out of the great tribulation, the, the angel answered, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So Ellen G. White confirms the 24 elders are one of the strong angels. So question, 
Why was Satan attending these meetings and what right does he have? Let's look at Luke 4, 5-7. through 7. Then the devil, taking him up high in a mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. So, why does the devil have authority on earth? Because Adam delivered it to him in the Garden of Eden, right? So, if Adam never sinned, Adam and Eve never sinned, would Adam be earth's representative in these council meetings? Yes, of course he would have. Satan would have never had to take, Satan would have never been allowed at these meetings. So, question. If Adam is our Earth's representatives, and we're saying that the other planets are also represented by strong angels, why do we have a human representative? What makes us so different? Um, and that is because God's plan was different than any other planet in the universe. Let's see what Ellen G. White has to say about this. And this is from Sons and Daughters of God. All heaven took a deep and joyful interest in the creation of the world of man. So this is all heaven took an interest in this. Human beings were a new and distinct order. So this is something never done before. They were made in the image of God, and it was the creator's designs that they should populate the earth. So our, we were designed to populate the earth. We're going to expand a little more upon that. They were to live in close communion with the heaven, receiving power from the source of all power, upheld by God. They were to live sinless lives. So, what separates us from the other planets? Is it possible that we are the only ones able to procreate? The Bible tells us that we are created a little lower than, than the angels, right? But once we passed the test and earned our salvation we would repopulate heaven and fill the vacancies left by Satan's angels. And Ellen G. White's going to say that here. Um, this is from The Truth About Angels. God created man for his own glory that after tests and trial, the human family might become one with the heavenly family. It was God's purpose to repopulate heaven with the human family. And here's, let's read two more. And this one's pretty direct. Satan has an accurate knowledge of the sins that he has tempted God's people to commit, and he urges his accusations against them, declaring that by their sins they have fortified divine protection and claiming that he has a right to destroy them. He pronounces them just as deserving as himself of exclusion from the favor of God. Are these, he says, the people who are to take my place in heaven and the place of the angels who united with me? Now watch Satan, he's so cunning here. They profess to obey the law of God, but have they kept its precepts? Have they not been lovers of self more than lovers of God? Have they not placed their own interest above his service? Have they not loved the things of the world? Look at the sins that have marked their lives. And it's interesting that Satan's bringing all this up. He still <laughs> is missing the point. It's because of God's grace and mercy that we are able to be there with him, right? And read. let's read one more Ellen G. White quote. The vacancies made in heaven by the fall of Satan and his angels will be filled by the redeemed of the Lord. Very clear, right? 
So does scripture say anything about this? Let's read Luke 20, 34, and 36. Pharisees are trying to trip up Jesus, asking if someone is married multiple times who he will be with, right? So this is a little context. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. What's the sons of this age? This earth, this time now, right? But those who are counted worthy to attain that age, or is that age referring to heaven, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Why will there be no marriage in heaven? Because it has been fulfilled. Marriage had a specific purpose in this age, and that was procreation. Isn't this an amazing story? I love that it gives a new perspective on God. Not only are we created to have a relationship with him, but we take the place of the fallen angels. Is it any wonder why marriage has been so diluted that you can't even recognize it anymore? I believe that Satan knows his time is coming to an end and is trying every last trick in the book to divert us from the plan of salvation. I don't know about you, but I want to do everything in my power to make sure that I'm part of the God's plan for us. And that's the lesson, guys. I hope uh, you were able to learn something. Uh, this has been one of my kind of favorite studies I've done in the past year, two years. I've gone over it just because it's something so different and it's something you don't hear. Um, so thanks for joining us. And um, hopefully um, I'll come up with another one soon. Thanks.